What's going on, everybody? Caleb Carter here, and you are listening to the Royal Pursuit Podcast. I am pumped that you're here with me today as we wrap up this little three-part series, taking a look at Luke and just understanding what is going on, what is Jesus up to, because today we're going to be bringing this all to a head as we look at John the Baptist behind bars and ask some questions about where is he coming from. Maybe, just maybe, this fresh perspective at these miracles that Jesus has been doing will help inform us about maybe what's going on with John because I've only heard about his his questioning from one perspective. But today, we're going to talk about it from a different angle. So expect to revisit the topic of expectation and how dangerous it can be, but also expect to take a look at John. And I'm going to pose the question, are we John the Baptist 2.0? It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Let's jump in. Okay, here we go. Taking a little look at Luke. Say that 10 times quickly. Here we are at the last section of this little series. And I'm excited about this because this passage about John the Baptist in chapter 7, verse 18 of the book of Luke, I think most Christians have heard this story about John. Even John the Baptist doubted about, are you really the Messiah? And I've heard that a lot. And I did a Google scour. It seems to be the consensus amongst a lot of people. And and I'm not here to say that that's not the case. But what I am here to say is that every time we read the scriptures, every time we hear someone teaching about the scriptures, we need to ask questions. We need to ask why. Why do you believe that? What makes you believe that? Where are you getting that from? And I think so many of us, we feel like that is rude or... Um, maybe just too nosy or arrogant. I'm not sure what it is, but we often can feel as if we shouldn't ask those questions or that we're not allowed. But I, I want to I empower you. I want to let you know right now that it is good to ask those questions. It is good uh, to try to dig in and understand where a teacher or a preacher is coming from. Uh, and if their posture is defensive or they're a little aggressive with you, that should kind of signal sirens or, or, or warning warning signs um, that something might not be right because anybody worth their salt is going to invite questions, that's going to appreciate curiosity. One of the best quotes that I've ever heard is that we shouldn't fear criticism because criticism only makes a good idea better. And so we need to ask good questions. And recently, we've dug into these last two miracles, um, or the first two miracles that happened right after the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at Jesus healing the servant of this centurion, and then we looked at Jesus healing this widow's dead son from Nain. And both of those pointed us back to the Old Testament, specifically 2 Kings 4 and 5. And they told us a lot about the heart of God, and also that Jesus is the perfect prophet. He is, he is the perfect manifestation of the word. But now we're going to dig in even a little bit further because all of this context, all of this work we've done is going to inform us on how we should think about 
maybe what's going on with John. And so I don't want to waste a whole lot of time, but I think it's important to make sure you understand that it's okay to ask questions. You're not going to break the scriptures. The scriptures are not fragile. They're like a mighty lion. Scripture says that the word is is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so it's important that you know that. And I don't want to continue to beat a dead horse, but it's it was really important for me to get that off my chest. So what we're going to do now, we're going to dig into Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to start at 18, and I'm only going to read down to probably maybe verse 26. We'll see when I get there. Um, but this is a pretty short chunk, and I think it's going to give us some really good meat to chew on, to talk about, to reflect on. So here we go. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's message left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Okay, so that's a good spot to break, I think. So again, following in the same theme as the last two sessions, what is going on here? What is John thinking What are his disciples doing, and how is Jesus responding? What does that mean for me? So the first thing that came to me as I was studying this text, as I was reflecting on it, was thinking about John's response. So we've we've traditionally interpreted this, that John is imprisoned, right? He, he He got imprisoned because of what he'd said to Herod, and now he's paying the price. And so some people have sat there and wondered, maybe he's having this faith crisis. Maybe he's doubting that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And, and, I, and I don't think that that's far-fetched by any means, and, and I'm not here to deconstruct that. But as I was sitting here thinking about it, you have to, you have to wonder, when, when scholars talk about these, these disciples and when scholars talk about just what was the culture, they, they refer to the memory and the, and the deep um, culture of, of growing in the scriptures, the Old Testament, what they would have called the Torah. Um, they, would have, they would have immersed them, immersed themselves in it. And so you would think that John watching and getting these reports from his men about what Jesus is doing would instantly trigger him to Elisha, because there is very few miracles that look like what just transpired. But John doesn't, his mind does not go to Elisha. His mind goes somewhere else, and that's what we've got to wrestle with. Why is that the case? And to be honest, my first my first thought was, do you think it could be possible that his disciples 
are kind of throwing a bias onto how they recall what Jesus is saying and they're doing. Have you ever experienced that before when someone tells you a story, but they kind of roll their eyes or they their voice kind of drops or rises at different points to kind of signal that they are not buying it? And they say, oh, well, Caleb, he's out working again today. I mean, they're telling the facts that I'm out working, but they're, they're also saying something without saying it. And so my, my first thought was, is it possible that they weren't reporting all of the story? And unfortunately, the text doesn't say that, so we can't really infer that that's what's going on, because it does say that the disciples told him all these things. So they've been kind of giving him this report of what he's been saying and what he's been doing. And John is not, it's not connecting for him in some way, shape, or form. And so I think it's important to take a look and, and see how Jesus responds, because Jesus tells him, look around. The sick are being healed. The lame are walking. The blind are receiving sight. The kingdom is here right now. And he tells him to go and report that to John. Like, think about it, John. Take a look at the facts. And I thought that this was so, so relevant, because in my profession, a big part of what I do is leadership development. And I teach on what we call crucial conversations. It helps give people a framework for how to talk about uncomfortable things, how to hold someone accountable, how to disagree with someone, and so on and so forth. And in the training, they talk about this reality. And it's so true that, that oftentimes what gets us in so much trouble is not our emotions per se, but it's the stories that we tell ourselves. And so there's this four-step process that we kind of walk through that explains how this happens. So the first thing is is that we hear and we see an event. And then those are the facts. We start telling a story instantly about what we're seeing. Once we've told that story, then we start feeling our feelings from that story And then we start acting on those feelings, and everyone acts on them in different ways. But it happens in the snap of a finger how quickly we can tell a story. Brene Brown has this hilarious video where she talks about how quickly she can tell herself a story. One morning, she's drinking this giant cup of coffee, she says, and all of a sudden, she slips, and the coffee mug falls from her hands hits the kitchen floor, and breaks up into a thousand pieces. And before the coffee could completely set into her pajama pants, she says, dang you, Steve. And she didn't say dang. <laughs> and, and, and she pauses and says, now see, this is how quickly I can tell a story. You see, because the night before, I was up later than I was supposed to be. I typically go to bed at, let's say, 10.30. But that night, I went to bed at 11.15 because my husband, Day, or Steve, he was supposed to be home, but he actually was a little bit later. Because he was a little bit later, I slept in. Because I slept in, I'm tired. And because I'm tired, I had a bigger cup of coffee, which is why I dropped it. She told that entire story in nanoseconds. And that story started fueling her emotions, and she started acting on those emotions. And so me with this knowledge, because I teach this for a living, I'm sitting here thinking about John. And John is hearing that Jesus is spending time with a Roman centurion. And Jesus is spending time in Nain. I don't remember if I mentioned it in the episode of Nain, but the name is called Beautiful. Apparently this was a place known for its scenery, and it just was a really cool place. And I'm not sure if it was a Gentile 
uh, town or not. I, I, I tried to do some digging. I couldn't find out. Maybe one of the listeners, if you if you have, uh, let me know. Uh, again, we're going to have a, a space for everyone to be able to communicate, hopefully a Facebook page and other resources. But, but either way, John is hearing these accounts and he's telling himself a story. And our job is to ask, what kind of story? And I think The Chosen kind of gets into this a little bit as they're kind of telling their version of the story. As they are looking at John the Baptist, uh, there's a scene where he's kind of like pressing Jesus. And he's like, when are you going to get to work? And Jesus is telling him, hey, I've got my timing. Don't worry about me. And so for me, as I was doing this study on the book of Luke, as I was studying these instances, it to me, popped off the page that maybe John isn't doubting at all. Maybe John's just frustrated. Maybe John is is like looking at Jesus saying, I've known you since I was a baby. I baptized you. I, I've been hearing about all the work you're doing. I know exactly who you are, but I don't understand why is it happening like this. Are you really the Messiah? And not in the sense of, I don't think you are. Maybe in the sense of, are you what I thought you were going to be? What are you doing messing around? Look at our people. Look at where we're at. It's time to make things happen. Let's shake things up. To me, I think that's John's posture here. I don't think he's doubting at all. I think he knows very good and well that this is the Son of God. This is the man that he has been speaking about. But I think that he has what we would call paradigm paralysis. And I know that's a bit of a technical word, and I don't really care for $5 words. But follow me for a second. Basically, the word paradigm, it only means a puzzle. It's it's in a sense that you you start to see things in a pattern. And we can get so used to seeing things in a pattern that we can't see things in any other light. There's no other way to see them in a sense. You become almost blind to any other reality. So therefore, you're paralyzed by your paradigm paradigm or the pattern that you see things. The way that I like to explain it when I'm teaching is that have you ever lost your keys and you start walking through your house and before long you find yourself just making a loop, almost checking the same spots, even though you know that makes no sense. You're just kind of stuck in this pattern. That's how I describe it. And in business, we talk about this a lot because this has been kind of the the rise and fall of many businesses. I'll give you a great example. Uh, I have an article in front of me about being in the late 1940s. This man walks into a laboratory of a major photographic manufacturer in America to demonstrate this new photographic process, how they take pictures. But he didn't bring along a camera or film. He just brought along this little red box with this shiny steel plate and a charging device, a light bulb, and a little container of black powder. And instantly, he created a picture, and it was faint, but it was discernible. And the people, all they could ask was, where's the film? Where's the developer? Where's the darkroom? This isn't really photography. This is something else altogether. And so the company couldn't see the opportunity. They could only think of photography in the way that they had always thought of it. And because of that, they missed out on this revolution and it became a multi-billion dollar industry of like the Xerox process. And But we've seen that with, um, if you're old enough, uh, we've seen that with, uh, what, what am I looking at? Like family video or um, Blockbuster, things like that, or how Uber disrupted the cab industry. Uh, all these people, all these industries, uh, it's human nature to get locked into a paradigm. And so... As, where am I going with this? My, my whole point is that maybe John is 
in that same vein. Maybe John had kind of an expectation, a paradigm of how the Messiah was supposed to act, what exactly the Messiah was supposed to do. And as soon as the Messiah is not doing that, alarm bells start going off for John. And I think this makes sense because Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Think about that phrase. Blessed is anyone, essentially, that doesn't miss the kingdom because they tripped over the Messiah who is bringing it. And I think that is such a relevant message for us today. We talked a little bit about expectation when we looked at Naaman, but I want to open it up just a little bit more for reflection because I think this is one of the major elements in this story is how how expectations can rob us of seeing God at work. I've been in church now for over a decade, and I've watched people leave the church angry and in tears because their expectations weren't met. I've watched people miss out on some amazing gospel activity because it didn't meet their expectation. They they thought of it in a different light. Again, I, I, I refer back to marriages. I think it's one of the easiest places for expectation to cause incredible problems. And so that's that's my that's my insight to you. That's, that's for me to bounce off of you, for you to take this text and to read it for yourself and say, hmm, you know, I don't quite agree with Caleb. I think John was having a, a faith crisis. Or, wow, I've never really considered it that way. But if you take these two stories and you connect them to what's happening, because there's no pause here from chapter 7 all the way through um, this this section, there's no pause. So this is all transpiring, and I think it's all connected for a reason. There's not a clean break, and later then, no, it all continues and continues rolling. And I think that's important for us to wrestle with. But expectation can be so dangerous, and like I said in the first episode, our job is to question our expectations. And I think one of the best ways that we can do that is we stay connected to community. And we stay com- connected to a community that's diverse, filled with different people from different backgrounds and different age groups. The church that I attend right now, we have these connection groups, and we wanted their design to be eclectic. We wanted there to be old, young, different socioeconomic background, different races, because we wanted it to feel like a big hodgepodge family. Because the last thing that Caleb needs is to be filled with a room full of other Calebs. We're just going to share and repeat each other's position. But if we're all coming from different backgrounds, we can challenge expectations and we can grow. And I think that is an image of the kingdom of God is when we're committed to being together. But there's also one last thing that I want to share. And and again, I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but I think that there's some of this essence here in the text. There's a character in the Second Kings stories that we shared from chapter 4 and chapter 5. Elisha's got this servant named Gehazi, and the text does not paint Gehazi in a positive light. So when the Shunammite woman is trying to get to Elisha, um, she falls at his feet, and, and Gehazi is like pushing her out of the way, like, what are you doing, woman? And Elisha kind of scolds him for it. Uh, And so it's not a very positive image for him. And then that image even grows through the Naaman story. As Naaman has received this transformation, as he's, you know, become healed and he's a a God-fearer now, um, 
he he wants to give all this money to Elisha, and Elisha doesn't accept it, of course. And as he's leaving, Gehazi gets this bright idea that I'm going to go and get some of that. And so he does, and he pursues Naaman, and Naaman blesses him with all this stuff, and, and it ends with Gehazi having leprosy. It's a pretty wild, paradoxical story overall. We didn't have time to cover it all last time. But my whole point is that I wonder if there's some of that essence here in the story for the reader, wondering, is John going to end up stumbling like Gehazi did? Is John going to be a good servant, a good helper to the, the mighty prophet who Jesus is coming in? And I think that that's a neat element that we can look at. As I said at the beginning of this episode, there's something else that I have felt in my heart for a long time is that we truly are, in my opinion, John the Baptist 2.0. If you think about that, we have been reborn with a purpose. Our purpose is to usher the return of the King of Kings, to prepare this world for his arrival, or his return, I guess, more or less. And that's our job, to go out and tell the world. Well, that's exactly what John the Baptist's job was for the first arrival of the King of Kings, to prepare and make paths straight and get ready for the arrival of the King. We get to do that as well. And I think if we're blinded by expectations, we'll miss it. We'll miss what he has for us. We'll miss the amazing kingdom opportunities if we get so entrenched in our own versions of how this is all supposed to play out. And the beautiful thing is, there's really no formula or prescription for me today. The best thing is to be in community, growing and wrestling with the text and questioning your expectations, um, and being committed to loving others just like Jesus did. And that's the value and the power in the text. Uh, And that's what I was so excited to kind of open this podcast up with, was just how connected these scriptures are. What's going on in Luke chapter 6 and 7, and what happened 800 years before that in 2 Kings? Uh, You just can't make this stuff up, written by completely different authors in completely different times. And so that's my hope for this podcast, especially these, these weekly episodes, is that we look at different texts and we just have a conversation. So next week, I hope to release an episode looking at one of the Ten Commandments, one of the ones that I feel like we often get the most wrong. And so that's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, Look forward to releasing some other episodes that are more about just Christian wisdom and thought. Um, But I hope this has been useful. I hope that this has opened your eyes and refreshed your desire to dig into the text. If this is your first time really wrestling with the text, I hope this has given you... um, just a taste of what's there, that this scripture is like a mine, and each day you get to go in and just find these amazing nuggets. And that's my hope, is to be a partner, to be someone we can go back and forth with uh, as as we try to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. But that's all I have for you today. And so I look forward to talking to you next week, and together we'll try to pursue royalty. I love you guys, and we'll talk soon. Bye.